0: Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative-turned-marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. In episode 20 of The B-Side, I speak to Crystal Rata, a senior project manager and video producer with over 16 years of experience working in media, digital and video production. She's worked across B2B, B2C, retail, music and broadcasting, law, finance and the advertising sectors. Crystal and I talk about how she was raised on a farm in a small town called Taranaki in the North Island of New Zealand born into a family of creatives and a mother who homeschooled her and led her to completing a BA in psychology and screen arts from Waikato University. She shares how fate landed her a dream job at Juice TV, which led to a move over to Sydney where she's called home for the last 14 years, working for iconic brands like MTV, Billabong and Westpac, and for agencies like 72 and Sunny, BBDO, The Monkeys, VML and others. We jam on everything from social media, marketing, working from home, agency life, politics and pretty much everything everything in between. Crystal's a soulful, genuine and incredibly talented creative all-rounder with the brains of a psychologist and the spirit of a musician. It was a really cool chat. I really enjoyed it and I know you will too. Cheers. I'm in the house with Crystal Rata... Crystal, Rata, how are you, my dear friend? I haven't seen you for yonks yonks. I know,
1: way too long, way too long. I'm doing it well, thank
0: you. (laughs) Love that. We're still doing it by Zoom. It would be awesome if we were down at the Lord Nelson. Uh, We were just talking about the Lord Nelson. The last time we saw each other was at the pub. The Lord Nelson, to be precise. It has been a long time between drinks, though, hasn't it? I mean, how long has it been? It's been years, years. Well,
1: you've had a wedding and a baby,
0: (laughs) sir. I've had a wedding and a baby. You've you've travelled, I don't know, you've done a whole bunch of stuff. It's Great with that we can follow each other on social media, and you yeah. still kind of feel connected. I talk about this. I'm sounding really old now, aren't I? Um, <laughs> so talk to us about what's been happening. To, maybe we start at the beginning. Okay. Give us a bit of a background for the people that don't know Crystal Rider. You know, she is an absolute gun, an all-round genius entertainer. You know, a bit of a um, renaissance woman, if you ask me. Um, but why don't you talk about yourself?
1: It's a goddess, yeah. and tell us where it all
0: started, and where you're from, and what you do, um, and all that stuff.
1: So. I guess my creative journey started when I was really young. Uh, I was really fortunate and my mother decided to homeschool me when I was younger. So um, one of the things that you can watch TED Talks on this as well, but one of the things they say about uh, normal school is because it was invented in an industrial age, you actually get trained, your creativity gets trained out of you. And you because you're in an in a, in a environment where you're getting told things are right or wrong as well you quite often face a lot of rejection at a very young age about your ideas and your concepts and um so creativity can actually be really squashed when you go to school so when I say I was homeschooled the schooling part was a bit loose we mostly just ran around all day in our imaginations and kind of you know went off to the shops or we'd go off for four hours and play make forts and you know, the, the farmer's haystacks and things like that. So I think I, I had an, a creative advantage, not advantage, like there's lots of people who work, go to school who are very creative as well. But I think for me, just having a mother that encourages you to be creative for starters. So um, we did things like instead of going to school, we, we did lots of violin lessons and piano and dancing and all that kind of stuff. And it was very um, top of the list of things that you wanted to do with your life would be in a creative role. So she was never like, you should be a lawyer or a doctor. She was always like trying to get us to be encouraged to music. And my dad's a very, very good musician. He plays um, probably most instruments, but um, predominantly guitar and lead guitar. And um, so I was always surrounded by uh, music and art, which I think, you know, that's what gives you your passion for it. Not just that, you actually feel like you can do it. I hear so many people tell me that they're not creative. And these people are like, they're strategists. I'm like, you're a creative problem solver, you're coming up with a strategy, but they yeah. just don't. They've always been pigeonholed into thinking. That they're not creative, which is just bizarre to me. You can't survive in this world in a top level job without having some level of creativity.
0: Creativity. It's really funny, isn't it? Thanks for taking us through that. I mean, we're only really just getting started, but I'm already so inspired by what you were saying, and there's so many little side discussions I'd love to pick back up with you around that. But I will start by saying I I think that's a really topical discussion we're having at the moment, especially in a time where um, business creativity is so important. The advertising industry I love and I think they've really sort of embraced this creativity at all costs ethos. But where I think it does fail is the further siloing of the creative roles and I don't think we should be encouraging that once you walk into that agency you're part of the creative process you're contributing to the creative process I think when an agency starts putting up silos ooh, the creative department let's use verbs to um (laughs) to to label people who should be using occupation names you know what I mean like it's I don't don't
1: agree more it's like um even because I did a lot of producing in my career and you know, when I first started as a digital producer, you did the UX, you did the um, the functional specifications, you did all these things, and you were just you were just labeling one thing—a producer. And now that they silo off, like you've got a BA now, and he has to do that, and you've got a, um, you know, you've got the functional specs guy who does the technician who does this, and the UX person—they you tend to have these people feeling like their toes are being stood on just because you've come up with an idea that technically fits into their bucket. And I think that's um, it, one, having the same, doing the same old thing at work every day is just boring for anyone. Yeah. And so having a varied role is so much more engaging as a human. Uh, but so, yeah, you don't, I, I think that's silly to try and label people, especially start trying to label people you're creative and you're not.
0: You picked up on that point. You're more engaging as a human. The science says that every, it's essentially what made us the sharing of ideas and the search for meaning and the way we articulate that meaning creatively is essentially what makes us human. Collaborating and sharing ideas is literally what makes every single one of us human, you know, and and it's weird to say that one person is creative. It's essentially you're taking away their humanity, (laughs) you know. It's like, it's just an absurd thing. I get triggered by the word creative, even though, like, I proudly called myself a creative, I really, when I empathize with others who, like yourself, didn't start in the creative department and didn't feel like they belonged. It's a myth, ultimately, that we're perpetuating. We're all creative. Even Look at these kids. They don't even know what advertising Um, is. But to your point, you were homeschooled, and it was just there. It was accessible. It was just what you did. You were creative. You expressed
1: yourself. And also, like, I was brought up to that we didn't watch television. We were allowed to – we didn't have a TV for 12 years when I was younger, but then when we did intermittently have a television, it was like, you're allowed to watch our world the David Attenborough and Sunday kind of thing. So it's interesting that I got into this field just based on the fact that we didn't have a lot of that kind of stuff in my life as a child. I mean, mum said to me that when I was three, I told her I wanted to be, she said, I I said, mum, I don't know what it's called, but I want to be on a serial (laughs) she <laughs> picked up that I meant that I wanted to be an actor in a series.
0: <laughs> uh, <right. laughs> you mentioned you, you, you farm you, hay bales and everything else. Whereabouts did you grow up?
1: So I'm from a place called Taranaki in New Zealand. Um, sure. It's in the North Island of New Zealand. But it's quite a big province, but I'm from a small town of about 3,600 people. Um, so it was a very small kind of farming community. And even though my parents didn't have a farm, we'll farm at the time, they still had like we had chickens and and goats and sheep and things like that that were always around. Lots of cats,
0: <laughs> yeah, lots of cats.
1: <laughs> yeah. <lots> of cats. <laughs> um, so it was a, it was kind of that environment where it was quite hands on. We had gardens. We gardened a lot.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: I'm like when you homeschool, do you have time for those things? Yeah. <laughs> you know, coming yeah. home and doing homework. You know?
0: <laughs> and how did you get into the um, ad industry when you did decide that you wanted to very- be? In, in the serials.
1: Uh, so I wanted to be in the serials for ages, but then as I got older, I kind of um, lent myself more to music, which was my dad really encouraged me in that. But I always wanted to be a psychologist because I've got a natural um, interest in humans and how we relate to each other and, and, and uh, relate to ourselves. Um, so I actually wanted to be a psychologist from when I was thirteen. I was like, "That's me." And so I went to university and I chose a double major in psychology and philosophy. Uh, but then took as a first supporting subject screen and media. I just thought, oh, it'd be fun. I'll take a, look, a few music courses and a few screen and media courses. Um, but then I just absolutely loved it. In particular, I loved the editing course I took. So I, I flagged the philosophy <laughs> and then went to double major in psychology and screen and media. Um, and then after during that time, I just discovered that oh, this is me. Oh, this is what I want to do. I want to make... Um, content, video content. Um, I love the editing. Um, and then after that, I my first job out of university was to work at an advertising agency as a receptionist, um, which I hated. <laughs> I was a receptionist and it just did not suit me that well. Um, even though the client's like me, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it doesn't have any passion for me. But I was lucky enough to actually have on my desk uh, one of those old MacBooks, you know, with the coloured backs. And um, there was um, that first editing software from Mac. And so when I was in my downtime, sometimes when I was on my lunch break or after hours at work, I would edit, I edited together a little video clip as a submission to become a TV presenter. But then that did, I didn't hear back from them, but, <laughs> but um, I did actually catch, um, we had Juice TV as one of our clients. And Juice TV at the time was New Zealand's only music channel. And one of the guys, salespeople, came through, and I said to him, "Hey, what do you do for editors at at Just TV?" Just out of interest. And at the time, he actually thought, "Oh God, not another receptionist asking for a job." <laughs> I said, I've, "I've got a degree, you know, like I'm just interested." And he said, "Well, actually, our, our editor quit today. And so oh, really? this wow. time ever, I had an interview the next week and got the job the week after."
0: Isn't that amazing, the universe? If, there's no, This is like people talk about um, Nick Bostrom's um, simulation hypothesis. This is it. You were meant to be. You were coded to be this <laughs> at this place in this role. That's <laughs> so coincidental. Hour. I was
1: just like, oh, my God. And yeah. yeah. actually took a $4,000 pay cut to from a receptions to being an editor, and then I am like, double the hours because you're looking at the edit suite for a long time. And back then, like, they had a million-dollar editing machine but that thing rendered two frames a second. You know? So you get up promo and you go and down and have a cup of tea, and then 20 minutes later you come up and you're like, oh, I've done something. Imagine done. working on a
0: feature film. Jesus Christ, you'd be there for like. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so you'd be like, getting a
0: lifetime achievement <laughs> award by the time the film's finished. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But within, like, um, two months, I was being hired out at $450 an hour. Wow, to yeah. Because I was on this machine, that was worth a dollars Yeah. And, you know, that's something that I haven't talked now. I've never been hired out. That yeah. Of um, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: But that was, you know, that was the process then. It was all big beta tapes into your 80 gigs worth of storage, which you thought was, was so amazing.
0: So you started out, with, like, heavily in the
1: craft. Yeah, it was really lucky. I think um, – Sometimes it's just the connection you have with people, and at the time, <laughs> I just got on really well with the guy who was hiring me. But it was a great learning ground because there's only about 21 staff in there. Most of them were the people who, uh, you know, were actually in the machine rooms putting on the tapes for all the music that was playing. Um, so it was just a brilliant place to learn because all of I went from just being an editor to straight away being a camera operator. Had the most amazing guy teach me camera operation, uh, and then I was the only trusted person to go out and film out of studio so I'd go I mean at 23 you're going out and meeting all of your famous musical idols and you're in a room it was quite ghetto so it was always a little bit <laughs> you know you're like you're the one who's setting up the camera and the lights and the sound equipment
0: yeah yeah
1: represented <laughs> yeah. there presenting uh, but it was just amazing like you went to all the industry parties you got free tickets everything you got free drinks everything it was just crazy oh that's awesome um, yeah yeah it was so good and then in that role, I actually started dabbling in digital media. So we were delivering uh, music videos to one of the telcos. And then I decided to go and to do my big OE over in London and was going to just pass through Australia on the way because my best friend lived here. And managed to land a job at MTV, just oh, in yeah. my job at GTV, saying, oh, can you just hit up? And you know those guys, can you hit up and see if they need anyone? It was a four-week contract at the start, which was just doing some awards Um, cuts but um, the executive producer liked what I did and I had two roles going and one was for a normal television producer or you could join the digital media department which was I had one person in it who was my boss ended up being my boss Um, and that at the time they had like a two-page website and we went on I did even though the kudos was in the being the television producer you know I I know that digital media is going to be the way of the future. I've got the tiniest bit of experience here. I think I can add value to the company. Um, So I just decided I'm going to digital media. And within two and a half years, we had two of the top um, mobile channels in the country. We went from earning no money for revenue for the company to 25% of the revenue. Um, and also we had, like, multiple sites. We had a brand-new website and a, a broadband channel as well. So it just went – and we went from me and him, and then by the time I left in two and a half years, we had nine stuff. So oh. it really just exploded, and it was so fun. Like, I did – I used to specialise in um, content when I was at Juice TV for same-day turnaround. So we were taking mobile edit suites up to the mountain for snowboarding events, like the Burton Open. Um, and then filming stuff up there, cutting it while we're on the mountain, which was so fun, getting on the snowboard and picking up all the tapes and dropping off all the batteries and stuff, Um, and then quickly turning it around and then actually handing it off to news channels and and doing content. So that was really fun to transfer into MTV here because all of a sudden it was like going to Good Vibrations and doing the music awards. And I did a diary of Dizzy Rascal, which was everything shot him, and then that night we put up a clip of a you know, three three to six-minute clip of him and what he'd done. So it was like a really day-to-day diary type of situation. And he actually played the Mile High gig, which was a plane, 35,000 feet in the air. He played a gig on the plane, which was just phenomenal.
0: That sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, it was very like you get That sounds amazing. Yeah, you get to be kind of like – in the presence of rock stars, so you kind yeah, of yeah totally. like, living a bit of a rock star life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You've never been a prima donna, so I'm really surprised you, you're not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, no, because just, you,
0: your former formative years have been shaped by <laughs> you know rubbing shoulders with some of these like A-list celebrities and musicians and so on. You know. Well,
1: You've I never got, once ever asked for a photo with anyone. With yeah, someone. you were cool. Oh, they, you were they too don't cool. Care for too, us. Too but too I beautiful. I did start having a collection of. Just a photo of my butt while I'm standing next to them, putting the a lapel microphone. <laughs> so I did get a little small collection though.
0: <laughs> uh, that's awesome. MTV was that when they were down just off William Street?
1: Yeah, they're still there. You're They're on. still
0: there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I worked at Droga Five for six months. I was that's
1: right. I saw the- you up there one day.
0: Yeah, Droga 5, I was there um relaunching Woolies with Mike Spakovsky and I was partnered with Trent Christie and um we had a great time down there. They offered me a job, but I probably, I didn't take it. In hindsight, I probably should have because I really, <laughs> really loved it. I was there for about six months, maybe a bit longer and I'd walk past MTV and that was a brand that I loved and I'd go, maybe i would just walk in here and ask if I could <laughs> chat to someone about a job maybe, you know, like, yeah, because I just thought that'd be a pl- that would be the brand that I would have liked to have worked for back, back yeah. then, or even
1: now. it would fit yeah. in really well with their creative department. Their, their creative department was very, very good.
0: Yeah. So where did you go after after MTV? So, yeah.
1: After MTV, um, I went and did a big overseas travel because I got stopped here, and so it took me a few years to go and do that. Uh, but when I got to London, the GFC hit. <laughs> Like literally a month in or something so i came back here and when i came back i decided that i didn't really want to work full-time i wanted to be a freelancer because I, I got this new passion for travel and so i actually um just started freelancing and then freelanced in in you know, both um, video and digital for either um uh, for the next 10 years yeah wow. so, and i had i in those 10 years I had two to four months of a year to travel, which were yeah.
0: So you know, your, your reason for freelancing was so you could travel. Yeah. You could
1: did yeah. you do,
0: um, did you go through a headhunter with any sort of recruiters that you.
1: Uh, when I, yeah. I, so I use agencies, agents for my, yeah. For my, um, it's mo- it mostly works out for digital more than um, video videos, a bit harder to find yeah. an agent, but and I actually have actually spent more time in the digital space than in the video space since. And um, with the
0: video space, it, I, I know the crews are quite, um, it's a bit of a cottage industry in Australia and New Zealand. I, I feel as though everyone was a freelancer that I worked with in the yeah. industry, Do you know, like in the film Industry, whether they be working at cutting edge, they were the freelance editor that they bring in for a short stint on a project or yeah. a series of them. Is that still the case, or was it
1: the case then? Yeah. So you'll find now that a lot of editing type roles will be all director linked. So uh, if you get if you sign on a director, you'll have this editor that he wants to work with. Yeah. Um, there are you'd have to be quite a big an agency to have full time editors, but there yes. are definitely some. There are definitely a few that have like full time editors, and they. Work they work to the bone, so there. I mean, there is work there, but and you just have to know the right kind of producer. Usually, like the if you've got if you know anyone senior um, who makes ads or does the video um, stuff, Um, and that like you say, all those people know each other. but they're mostly women because in production, quite often the managers and the people who organise are women, Um, and yeah, they definitely know each other. They're such amazing women like they just um they work so hard and they just they know everyone
0: (laughs) yeah yeah totally totally
1: and so i guess if you don't know them you might be a little bit uh find it hard to to find someone like uh, actually Dee, who we used to work with that um is one of those women she's yeah she's
0: she's fantastic she's just a girl
1: matriarch say of the (laughs) industry um and lots of these women who are these matriarchs they do they do have a lot in common, you know, with their personalities type.
0: Yeah, which makes I, I kind of, I could, could kind of pinpoint it. It's like it's um, empath, empathetic, but no bullshit. Like don't yeah, fuck around, yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, what's something people don't know about you, Crystal um, Water?
1: When I was little, I used to pretend that I was a boy. Oh, cool! And it was just because I had short hair, and I knew from a young age that men were got some preferential treatment. Yeah. But it was mostly because little boys would run up to me and go, you're a girl, boy. And I knew if I'd say I'm a girl, yeah, yeah. they'd be like, I don't want to with yeah. you. But if I said I'm yeah. a girl, they'd be like, come and play. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I, I mean, I think it is. It's not like I have any kind of body to smoke or anything. I'm definitely full-fledged female. Um, but I do think that the way that gender is portrayed, especially in media and, and, and advertising, is so rigid for women. You know, like if you're not hyper-feminine, You know, you quite often don't feel like a woman, you know, like, and that's so stupid. Of course, there's so many colours of women, Um, and and you should feel feminine just because you're not hyper feminine, you know, like just because you're not girly, I should say. Or you know what I mean, lipstick and just you don't care about lipstick and makeup and and shoes and things, and you prefer computers and technology. And you know, you shouldn't feel. And they talk about toxic masculinity, but there's definitely toxic femininity as well where we get just so pigeonholed. And it's because we're represented by models all the time, you know, and they look hyper feminine, So it's like it does – it gives you a bit of displacement. But as a child, I think I just knew that men were a bit of preference.
0: (laughs) I've got a very, very close family member who was born female but is now trans, um, male, Um, very close family member. And um, I have known this person for as long as I – have been alive, and um, I always knew from day dot that this person there was their g- gender dysphoria. There was a, yeah. a disconnect between the gender they were born into, the yeah. sex, the sex they were born into, and the gender they truly were and identified with.
1: My nephew has from day dot not had protested to being called a her or a she, so she would always say, "I'm not a girl. I'm a boy." And this is like, you're talking to a two-year-old, you know, they've got hardly any concept of it. And like, I'm like, maybe she thinks there's preferential treatment for boys because of the stories she reads and stuff. But my, my sister is very, like, um, she's, I wouldn't call her an activist, but she's, you know, like, she's, I mean, we're all very open-minded. There's no way that she was, she would have been giving her, you know, lots of female role, strong female role models to, to, um, to, to, in her life, as in stories and all that kind of stuff. But that child knows. <laughs> he knows that he's not a girl. He knows. Like, nothing he can do. I mean, if he decides to change his mind never, at some point in the future, that's totally up to him as well. Yeah. But someday day dot, that child yeah. knew.
0: It, it, it's really funny. It's very confronting for a lot of families as well, because families have to. Culturally, toe the line, you know, and, yeah. and stay in their lanes and conform and everything else. But when a kid yeah. knows, they know. And,
1: they know, yeah.
0: And, and, the, and, and the I think
1: mean, fam- it's lucky that he brought into a family that it was almost like, yeah, you can <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. open minded to it and yeah. like really care about equality. In
0: my experience, my family were very, um, there were some um, moments where people were confronted by it, you know, but I think for the most part, it was a thing of respect and just prioritizing the health. And the happiness, being able to facilitate the comfort of the the child, you know, just being yeah. able to accept themselves and have the world help accept them. There were times when we had to sort of shelter them from the realities of, of, the, world, life, yeah. of the world and educate them on the realities of the world because not everyone is as accepting and it's just oh. a harsh, the harsh reality. Things are getting so much better. And if you're going to go out there and battle the world, then man, you're going to Every yeah. day is going to be a fight and that's exhausting. And they were the sort of the discussions we've had, you know. But yeah, it's a tough mm-hmm. thing, but I think it's getting a lot better. Yeah. And you're right. There's, okay. it's, it's a gradient, isn't it? It's a, this there's toxic masculinity on one side and hyper toxic femininity on the other side. Mm-hmm. But the reality is we just ebb and flow between those. Yeah. Whether that we're, well, born,
1: my we're honest, born, I actually wonders whether or not people would get this body dysmorphia if the roles were more open, you know. You know, would you feel like you're know, outside of your body if you were accepted to be a very blokey girl? You know,
0: that's so true. Like when we remove, why can't you just be?
1: Yeah, just yeah. be you. Not and people.
0: If I were to ask you then, like your experience, it feels like it's just like this creative superpower. You've been taught the way, the force. Would you say that was your <laughs> superpower? Just the f- fluidity with creativity and, and not feeling as though it's this privileged thing you've you've yeah. somehow been gifted. It's just there and you just do yeah. it.
1: That coupled with, you know, the mother, the encouraging mother who always set a very high standard and, you know, like was um, very open But, you know, like mum was one of those people who would give you not just a compliment like, oh, your picture looks so wonderful. It's so pretty, you know. It was more like encouraging in a way like, oh, how did you do that? Like what colours did you use that? Why did you with that kind of stuff? So it was very engaging as a. As a, as a sort of feedback loop, you know, it wasn't just like, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't just like, oh, that's wonderful. It was like really knuckling down to, you know, why you've done this thing. You've just yeah. found it.
0: What's the idea, know, what, Crystal? What could
1: be better? You know, that kind of thing. So yeah. it kind of like, like my mum was just an amazing human. I'm, a, I'm one of five children, so it can't been mm. easy to stay at home all day and keep these kids entertained. But yeah, um, yeah she just, she, she just really cares about the right things. But,
0: your mum is she still around? You you use past yeah. tense, yeah? Oh,
1: great. Yeah, she's a um, she works for uh, the government in New Zealand. just quite high up in the government. Right. Okay. Oh wow. Yeah, so she like she's one of the people that gets called on for so, like like Corona hits. You know, she has a very big. Um, and for to play. Man,
0: New Zealand is like the shining beacon of how to handle no. Corona. I'll tell you what. I mean, yeah. I, I always like my grandmother's a Kiwi. And um, whenever, you know, we, we the Kiwis win at the rugby or, um, you know, they handle Corona like they have, I always remind people that I'm like, you know, a quarter New Zealander. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <You know what? laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
0: Grandmother and my mum, yeah. sorry, yeah. Grandma I mean, Pig, she was great. Born in Hamilton. I love baby. that story
1: though, because you know, Jacinta Arden got um, criticized when she first came into power for not having just a straight lawyer background. So she got a degree in communications and they gave her heaps of stick about that, like, oh, just a communications person, you know. And then when things like the Christchurch massacre happened and then Corona her communications are so clear that it has helped the whole nation of people know what to do. You know, like, foot in the water, like, out. She's so direct about and knows exactly how to tell people what they need to know, that they're not left wondering or arguing or, you know, like, because in Australia, even though I think they have done a really good job because, you know, we haven't had heaps of deaths here, um, it's not out of hand really. They, but it was just so confused. It's still daily confusing to me about what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do. You know, we have people fight. Like one of my friends posted the other day, "Oh, aren't people wearing masks on on trains and things anymore? Like, how dare they?" And I'm like, "What's the point when everyone's going to work and not wearing one, going to school and not wearing one? You can't like you can't have that communication failure where it just seems redundant, you know." People aren't wearing masks on there, one, it's not mandatory, but two, it just feels redundant when you're going to go to work or you're going to go down to the local coffee shop and interact with someone who sees over 200 people a day, you know. The person sitting on the bus next to you is probably not, probably just saw her, her mum and then a couple of co-workers, you know. it's just There's just no real solidity on what we're supposed to be doing and when and how and, you know, what the outcome of these things are. Because I I challenge anyone to show me a study that says, Going on public transport,
0: you know, reduces the significant difference of catching the disease. Just- yeah, you're it's right. Just- I, I, I love your way of framing that, in that she came from a communications background and hence had this really in- innate understanding through her training and experience, the need to communicate simply and consistently. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, yeah, you're right. A lot of these career politicians have studied either <laughs> political science or law. Yeah. And they get in the weeds. Of, the they, they love the, the. They love the politics. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Let's you know. Let's do this hyper netty yeah. navel gazing, <laughs> ideological trickle down versus Reaganomics versus friggin' Keynesianism. You know all this fucking rubbish ideology crap. Or it's legalese. Yeah. You know? And, and so you're stuck between these Muppets who are fighting ideological battles or yeah. they're, they're, they're these frustrated ex-lawyers who are like... They're really
1: you know, good at, at um, standing up and debating. Yeah. they think it's is fit to debate, you know, but not really, you know, very good at leading.
0: <laughs> there are so many different ways of getting our news and ultimately fake news for a lot of the time. We need people to be able to communicate clearly, and consistently yeah. you know yeah. otherwise yeah. like we're going to find the information elsewhere and it's probably not the the right information yeah and, exactly. and that's what's happening at the moment right i mean oh, that's it, why
1: there's so much disillusionment in the world isn't it is because people used to think oh no you know it's it's social media it's it's all this kind of stuff and i'm like no your propaganda used to just come from three channels in the old days, and now your propaganda comes from every which way. Absolutely. And you can hear everybody's side of the story. So there are things that were probably fringe and not making it to mainstream media can, can surface now. But that's not to say that some of these things are, are wrong. Like some of those things are fully legitimate. They're just contradictory to what we think are our main set, and you have to keep an open mind for it. You can't just say, I don't agree with that. That's fake news. Um, a lot of stuff is actually, I think all it's doing is it's putting mainstream media in its place, which is showing up of the shills that they've become. You know, like um, I saw this really cool meme the other day and someone posted, you know, if your news channel is not reporting daily on the Julian Hassange case, then they're just a propaganda machine because the integrity of journalism, is this guy who's only told the truth. None of his stories have ever been Come out to be fake news or false. Here's the integrity of journalism, like in one, per, like you know, personified in one person. And yet, you hardly hear on mainstream media about his case. It's like if those people don't care, that means they're not really reported.
0: Would would you say that with Julian Assange, twenty years ago, he would have been called an investigative journalist? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, why don't we hear this term anymore? Uh, this- investigative journalism
1: because people aren't doing it anymore. That the whole the problem with um, it becoming all digital, the one the, the biggest I think side effect of the killing of newspapers is the defunding funding of news. So now people get paid like pennies <laughs> to do these stories and lots of them are sponsored stories. And so we just get shit news. Like you don't have you don't have budgets in your thing to fly someone in a helicopter and actually find out what the real story is now. And that's why um, New Zealand actually were quite lucky for a long time they had um, a moulding station, which was funded. And so, you know, if they had sent a journalist out somewhere and there was no story, they'd just come back it. It was actually no story. They're, you know, they had these other news channels that were like, you have to make, you have to sensationalise anything that you can find going, because we've just paid for you to get down there. So it's like, you know, those, it's mostly, I think, just budgets and, and money.
0: Well, you know, Kevin Rudd is calling for a royal commission into Murdoch's. Empire and the monopoly. Yeah, has, well, well that's another thing,
1: right? That brought yeah. up all the independence So you've got yeah. one or two voices that you can in, you know, can do in mainstream.
0: Yeah, I, I kind of I can't say I I did study media, and I do have a master's degree in communications and media and media arts and production and so on. But um, I can't say I've I, I've been interested enough to pay much mind to the the Murdoch Empire. What I will say though is I've heard that. He is he is not as ideologically obsessed with the right as much as um, people claim. What right. he what he does want to do is drum up engagement. Right. Engagement. I'm so,
1: sorry numbers more than
0: Yeah, totally. So if you can get people angry, they're yeah. engaged. And he doesn't give a shit about their ideological bent. He just yeah. wants people engaged. He wants them engaged. Rage equals engagement, right? And you keep people angry. So you need this ideological red herring to be able to engage the masses who are either moderates or just centrists, but he's using the rage to engage. And then you kind of go, yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe it is just about money. Yeah. Maybe maybe he really doesn't give a shit. Like no one's really – maybe he isn't this Machiavellian, super smart, sinister dude cares. Maybe he's just like going, oh, I don't give a shit
1: get my yeah, get my ratings um it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that that's what he's done. But, you know, you've got to have some integrity, take some responsibility for it well, I mean, what is disgusting?
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I love these guys like Craig Kelly, who, who obviously is supportive of those right-leaning, sensationalist nonsense, you know, the opinions of the, the fringe right. He doesn't believe in global warming. He's a climate change denier. And he'll throw everyone, all the scientists, the researchers, he'll throw all of them under the bus. Then you get to COVID-19, he needs to be this, contrarian fucking moron and like all these hardworking doctors and people in the medical profession he reckons he knows it all go and take hcq um that'll cure covid19 um all these morons are stupid it's like mate you just you're just trying to create rage and engagement you're just saying, "Look at me" by being a contrarian. Pull your head in, Craig Kelly. Honestly, like, they, they, and this is the mob, right? They don't want to have this. They don't want to have the the gnarly, hard conversations in the middle, and listen to the the experts and maybe debate the experts with science and facts. They just want to say these things. Just just say these things. Just say anything. I could say anything I wanted
1: yeah. if I don't
0: have to. Back it up with, like, like up real
1: – With any kind of Yeah, well, it's, it's it was interesting for me with corona because to, to this point, it really um, highlighted to me that people in times like this when they're driven by fear and anxiety, they are, will not listen to facts. They don't care. They're so emotionally tied into it. And yeah. I, I hate
0: the people who capitalize on that, who drive more yeah. fear and more yeah. division, you know. yeah.
1: Exactly, because they'll just—that's what they're looking for. They they want to pick up and run with something like this, and so they do. But that's why I think communications have to be good, so that the people aren't so worried and people aren't you know constantly in conflict with one another about what's the right thing to do and what's the proper thing to do and what what should we do. You know, if you've got a very strong communication and what to do, then. And it's, I mean, it says great things for us. You know, it really shows the power of psychology behind motivation. And I've been reading a lot of books lately. Like I love to read. I'm an audio listener, so I have to read the audio books. I love reading the crossover of books on gamification now because I'm I'm trying to develop apps. I really understand um, how to gamify an app, but all of it is just very simple psychology about what people motivates people. Yeah, um, and so it's fascinating to see. Like, I read this one book called I think it was just called Gamify or Gamification. Anyway, the guy um, has his own system called Octalysis. So, if you're interested in it, just Google Octalysis. But he talks about white white hat and black hat motivators. He has uh, Octalysis means he's got eight different motivators, and they're really fundamental human motivators. Like one, of, the first one is is like your call to something greater. So it's about you know, and this, is, this motivates a lot of people, especially in corona times, like you're like saying if you wear a mask, you'll help lots of people. That really is a thing much greater than yourself helping the world, you know, and that's a very strong motivator for humans. And then so when you break down simple psychology like that and if you actually use it in advertising, like well, I'm surprised that advertisers and advertising agencies don't have a lot of courses on psychology for their, their creatives but once you understand the fundamental, these little fundamental things, writing copy is so much easier because you know the trigger words to hit all these different motivators. You know, to use that language to trigger that type of person. You know, and it depends on what you're trying to sell to fit to whether or not this motivation or that motivation is going to work on your users um, or your customers. But you know, I'm really surprised there's not more psychology. Than
0: yes, I so am. I to be honest, and I think that that gets to the heart of everything. It's really um, fundamental to. Like yeah. you say, communication, isn't it? Just, I, I think a lot of people can get away with it if they have a real interest and understanding of people. If they're very yeah. empathetic. They may be able to get through without studying some formal psychology and whatnot. I think you and I both have had the, the privilege of being able to go to university and, and and learning a bit about psychology and reading or having an interest like yourself I have an interest in. Psychology and just human behavior. I, I even like, love just evolutionary, cultural, behavioral psychology. Like, but we've been behaving this way. Since we, we, we we started walking upright, you know, like we're a very social creature. We need the same base needs, you know, and I mean Maslow's hierarchy and all that stuff. We could go into. We won't do that now, but you know, and they're very crude, fundamental things. I think we forget that. Yeah. We,
1: we do. And history repeats itself constantly.
0: Like even social media, like the very nature of social media, we need to be part of the tribe. Yeah, we're still yearning <laughs> for acceptance,
1: and you can see a lot of why. Because um, I mean, Corona maybe me real what anxious world we live in nowadays like there's just so much anxiety is off the chains and it is because we've moved away from those tribes you know um we don't get the same kind of conditional like we used to our our head size to body ratio that's how you know how many primates you're supposed to interact with um so all primates depending on their head to body ratio that's how big their tribes are (laughs) Uh, and we're, we're supposed to have intimate relations with no more than 150 people right we just don't have that anymore, like we've got so our social media accounts are massive, we've got all these inputs from everybody and and then actually, when you come down to the crux of your friends, it's actually a lot smaller than than you know, good friends than your hundred and fifty tribes, so you don't feel as looked after or, or have as many inputs as you probably need from those close relationships, those actual intimate relationships um and so it's yeah we we're screwing ourselves over by by lack of tribe, you know. And the, uh, what I hate is what's actually happened to the to families. So you're expected to have this nuclear family that just looks after this baby and does everything. Like it's impossible to be able to keep your house clean and do all the chores and, you know, and keep food on the table, especially now the incomes are so low compared to the cost of living. Like you've left just so much pressure and you feel like such a failure when you can't do these things that you think are correct. when. Less than 200 years ago, a whole tribe would raise a child, you know. You'd just drop them off their parents' house. The auntie would see them twice a week. You know, like it was just mm. completely different world
0: yeah these this, this post industrial cultures that have um incentivized the hard working uh, individual and this yeah. individualist at all costs kind yeah. of um really, me right. and mine and mine and, and yeah
1: this handling issue like sometimes i buy my friends things and they're like you're so generous i'm like no, we should all be like this,
0: yeah, you know. Yeah. I just, it's not it's, it, it, it's, um, thing. it's
1: just part
0: of being human. My my stepdad Samoan, and um, he he wasn't the best student in the world because he left my mum. <laughs> my mum had a bad run with with oh, men, no. so he left my mum, and but, but anyway, but the wonderful thing about I was so I grew up with my stepdad from the age of five and a half until when he left, which was probably about thirteen, I think. And just the culture, the the Polynesian culture is so giving. Yeah. You don't own anything, man. Yeah. You don't, no one owns anything. It's yeah, always yeah. like you're always, everything is always on loan to yeah. everyone. And there's no, there's no overdue fees. <laughs> not bringing it back. I was like, got that money?
1: Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so not good. Like, if, if say you were in a hospital, yeah. everyone gives money to that person. It doesn't matter how. Yeah, my my my, my
0: stepdad used to send money home to Samoa um,
1: yeah.
0: every week. It was he used to send a bit too much money sometimes because it used to be a bit of a point of contention between my Balangi <laughs> mum and my son, Samoan Sam <laughs> <laughs> then. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, and yeah that's it. that and was one really, of his good traits I've got, a,
1: I've got a best friend who um is with a someone guy and she's like she's a bit the same she's like oh my god we're just always giving his family money to this that you know someone yeah uh, like i've never even met that uncle you know i don't you know it's what's it got to do with me that he's gone to hospital and i said yes penny but if anything ever happens to your partner you know that, that whole family will be there yeah totally yeah, exactly yeah. the same thing that to you and yeah. when she really was a like a penny drop moment? Well, who knows? Uh, um, but it re- the penny drop for her at that moment, she's yeah. like, "Right, you're right. This is why they do it. It's, it's reciprocal. You know, it's reparative.
0: It, it, it's easy to." So you know, that's just that's a culture that you know their communities are different. They're not structured the same way as Western communities and all that. But I don't believe that. I think you know we could we could learn a lot from those communities that take responsibility for their people and their communities. And it doesn't mean you have to send back thousands of dollars every month or anything.
1: You can see it in New Zealand, in New Zealand is a nation as well. Like the difference between the difference between Australia and New Zealand is fun. Like we both came from. Like we're colonized by the same people. with different peoples to begin with, but they were colonised by the same English, Irish, French, you know, lots of different cultures. But So they basically started their colonial times the same way, yet the cultures are very different, and it's because New Zealand embraced the Māori people. Because of that, they have a lot of that someone-type culture where it's giving and it's looking out for one another, it's being humble and you see it in their sports stars. Have you seen the sports stars talk, like even the white ones, talk about, um, you know, how they won the game essentially. They're super humble about it, you know. It's not like, oh, and then I scored 20 tries or whatever. It's always super humble, even when they're trying to give them props, they kind of just play it down. And that's all from, you know, not all, but it is perpetuated from having a very solid foundational culture that was integrated um, I'm going to say well because obviously being colonised is a terrible thing for any um, Indigenous person. But, um, yeah, it, was just, it's just, it's, it has paid off culturally for them, I
0: think. And I love that. That's a really good example. I think Australia could learn a lot, many things from New Zealand. I think one great thing is just um, integrating our true culture, our Indigenous culture and cultures from the various countries into our cultural discourse broadly in Australia. And in New Zealand, it's very different. From the moment you walk through Auckland Airport, and you're greeted um, by the tiki and the, the, the totem. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah.
0: I'm using the wrong. Oh, uh,
1: that's fine.
0: To to if you look at a if you are lucky enough to see a New Zealand passport, you've got the the um, the oath. I guess, for lack of a better word, in both Maori as well yeah. as in English, and it starts yeah. with Maori and. Yeah. The, yeah. the pay the opposing page is English, and I just think these things may be symbolic. You know, they're their word sounds written on paper, but I think the meaning making and the and the respect that shows and conveys to people, um, regardless of their where they're from is just beautiful, and it's just something that I, I really hope one day I would love to see um, the various. It'd be awesome because there are so many different language groups in Australia, so it'd be a bit hard to do that here. But um, you know, four hundred different language groups. But yeah. it would be good to to, to to at least do something an equivalent of that, I think.
1: Some... Well you can, like you know which languages came from which areas. You just do it in the area with that language. It's not like you're asking people to be fluent in all of the four hundred languages. Languages there were, there's more diversity in to Aboriginal tribes than there are in the whole of Europe when it comes to language. <laughs> so everyone's asking everyone to be like fluent in these things, but it's just about a respect. A
0: respect, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's,
1: yeah. Like one of the, can I just bring this up because it's a question of day, is that Willamaloo sign in Willamaloo where it's like a she a toilet? I just, I just cannot understand how that is standing so disrespectful to call them like represented with a, to- a, a toilet and a sheep and a cow. Like just you would never get that in New Zealand. Yeah, no, you'd
0: never get that in New Zealand. But it's funny how, and if you complain about that, if it makes you feel a little uncomfortable and you complain about it, people say, Oh, you're being woke. You're making too much of a big deal about it. It's like, no, you know, it's just stupid. Like,
1: like I, I love it when people insult me by calling me a social justice warrior. I'm like, Excuse me, our whole society is built on social justice.
0: I I find it's really (laughs) annoying that if you have an opinion that is designed to um, encourage people to think about how others may feel. If you you are in the majority, right, and and you have an opinion that may encourage those in the majority to think about things from someone else's perspective, you're woke and you're a social justice warrior. It's it's stupid. I hope someone would do that. If I was living in Azerbaijan, I'd like,
1: be a decent person.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would hope someone goes, that dude, he's not from Azerbaijan, but he's a really <laughs> decent person. So are his family, and I'm going to stick up. Like, I would hope that, wouldn't you? I mean... <laughs>
1: <laughs> well call me woke if that's what work is but yeah
0: totally i like mean it's just every day, silly isn't it? every, day,
1: every day that's what woke is. it's yeah. just being a decent human i know it's but that's again what we come it's looping around back to labeling everything yeah, like, yeah
0: totally we're coming feel
1: it's like when people feel guilty for calling themselves vegetarian because they eat a bit of fish it's just like why do you have to be a vegetarian yeah just why don't be one just just eat vegetables eat most of the time
0: Yeah, just fucking eat your veggies, man, and enjoy it. (laughs) You don't have to call yourself a, like, (laughs) a a, a vego pescatarian flexi vegan (laughs) on Mondays. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it just doesn't have to, it doesn't need a label.
1: My friend used to call herself a friggin because she ate meat when it was free. But I think
0: I've come have a freedom because I just eat freely whatever I want. I'm a I'm an op, I'm, I'm an omnivore opportunistic feeder. If something <laughs> falls off my child's high chair, it's fair game, baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, that's my world. I'm just yeah, this is what I've become, Crystal. Anyway. <laughs> um, hey, so what are you doing now?
1: Uh, I decided to go finally um to client side because mostly because I have an obligated personality, which means I will just keep doing stuff if people tell me to (laughs) do it. So I was – me and agency didn't work out so well because I will just work to the bone on somebody who does 70 to 80-hour weeks, you know, just keep saying yes, just work, 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 work. And I just – it got to the end of it. Like freelancing for me for 10 years was good because it would be that or off, you know, off for a month. Uh, overseas, so that was a bit more easy to balance. But even then, I was just like, my wife has to be more than just from work. Work from nine till you know ten or eleven. Yeah, you know, it's got to mm-hmm. be more than this. <laughs> so I went client side, and I'm really lucky. My boss is amazing. She protects me from myself basically. So now I work for a big financial group, and I um, I just rolled out the they changed their name. They changed from a very old end of life legacy platform um, CMS to Adobe Experience Manager. So that's really interesting for me because I had had some experience in using that platform before, but doing it on the scale was really quite exciting. You know, I love working with the dev teams, and um, and we've also got an in-house creative team who uh, helps helped out a lot. Um, but now I'm kind of sort of moving more into uh, one of the tools that comes with that is called Target, and Target is an optimization tool. So I've started to get into a bit more kind of, analytical and testing optimizational stuff just because I've, I've naturally become more interested in, um, I've always loved technology, but um, artificial intelligence and the way that that's going to, you know, start being implemented more, I want to be on the forefront of that. But with someone working on the background on a an app that I am trying to get launched, <laughs> um, which is an uh, app for babies. So even though I'm not a mother, I just have a very um, – I've got a sort of like a good way of seeing a bigger picture and so sort I've of developed something. I'm just working through the functional specs of that now, but I'm also on the side trying to write a film about the New Zealand land wars. So those are my two side projects, which I have time for now that I work client side and actually have a life after work.
0: Wow. That's really, really cool. Can I pick you up on the babies one? Obviously it's quite topical for me with my 10 month old. I, 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 yeah, you really can, honestly, because I find baby products uh like it's high emotion for the most inane things. For example, like like the nappy, I use these recycled um nappy bags, like instead of buying one of those pails that you can put the the nappy the used diapers into and it wraps it for yourself and I just get like these bio-friendly um, biodegradable, small little nappy bags that you can get from Woolworths and Coles. They're different brands, but, but they must be made in the same, made by the same manufacturer. If you try and they, they come in those little pull-out thing, you know it's like a little pull-out. You can pull one out. they don't work. They don't work. They just don't work. Like you pull 10 out at once and it's like, I just need one. So they just don't work. So you go, there's this whole factory dedicated. You've got a CEO, the head of the nappy bag manufacturing company. Um, let's call it nappy yeah. bags are us. Right down to the person who who packs the bags into Not one person has thought, mm, maybe we should try and see if these bloody things work yeah and right. you go that 's a user a failed user experience <laughs> and there are so many flawed product designs, failed user experiences it 's not for the things that are heavily regulated, like um, clothing or toys or anything else because they 're really heavily regulated choking hazards yeah. it 's for the facilitatory stuff like nappy bags and like that there are so many cowboys out there i 'm thinking there 's a role for someone to come in and just go i 'm going to test all the the the, sh- <laughs> the shitty things that you wouldn 't think of. Prior yeah. to having your child, but are really, really bloody important, like a nappy bag that wraps your smelly yeah. nappy.
1: Well, it's interesting that you should say that because part of this app is—it's not—it's a smaller part of it, and it's definitely not um, the main—the main thing that I'm interested in in developing this app, But it is um, where the sort of the money would come from. I guess the business model is wrapped around it, um, and that is to have your to have a shop front similar to how you have Amazon, where it's not one producer producing these things but it's um, lots of um, smaller pro- producers producing things but you wouldn't even make it into that shot without us testing everything and also checking that it's all environmentally sound and all that kind of stuff because it's just important like it's certainly hard for people to know those things they need somebody they need somebody to say we have been we've got dedicated people who know that this the whole, you know, the whole production, the whole supply chain is legitimate.
0: It's the little things that make all the difference. Like once you've got your pram and you've got your yeah. your, your your clothing and all the big ticket items, the things that are quite high involvement.
1: But yeah, but I, I mean, the reason why it interests me is um, is like because parents are so motivated. You could never get a more motivated audience than a new parent. You know, they make buying decisions like <laughs> <they> make, <laughs> no, it's, it's, they, everything is. Hundred percent thinking about that child, so it's really a good industry to try and get into. Um, this is actually a health app as well, so um, you know, like I'm really hate how medicine is not preventative. Like it's mm-hmm. identify and fix is the model for medicine. So you go to the doctor because you think something's wrong with you, they identify that and they try and fix it. And there's not hardly any prevention, and you can't really do top tier preventative medicine until you have heaps of data. And so this app is helping collect that data. Um, but we're not but the, the the fundamental model behind it is if you put data into this app, you get returns off back. So you get credits in the shop front. So hmm. if you're if you're constantly filling out the surveys we send you, uh, we won't do it overly, but you know, or you just um, just day to day baby things that you need to put in the app for your own, you know, personal log of these things. Um, if you're interested in it, on top of that you get credits back into the shop because it's not fair that all these companies make all this money off our private data you know like when you when you look at Google and Facebook and how much they just they rape you for your data and then they sell it off to the highest bidder you know like how about giving some of that back to the people who did it? it's a commodity the data is a commodity nowadays.
0: how can we take more control of that like why isn't there a data share market like the Dow Jones or the ASX for data.
1: Exactly. And like, you might, I mean, you'd have to make it so that it is, um, it's val- It has some value to people, which, you know, that would be the biggest balance balancing act, having critical mass of people on there enough to sell the, the starter and also being able to, to give something back. But, you know, it's sometimes it's the little things that people like anyway, you know, like it what could about- be the right baby cream at the right time, right for time, time for yeah. for their thing, you know? Yeah. Or they're the right dispenser.
0: Dispenser. Yeah. It's really weird. It's a, such a rich territory going back to that data thing for a second in a minute. Wouldn't it be awesome? And just brainstorming for a second, why, why couldn't apps display the value of your data that they will um, accrue over the time of your estimated use of the app before you delete it? Then you could start figuring out the opportunity costs of these. These apps, and you could be far more mindful with the apps that you do decide yes, yeah. to download, and those that you choose not to. Because you know, I wouldn't download Candy Crush when I did if yeah. I knew that my data was worth, you know, a million dollars over a lifetime.
1: Yeah.
0: And then, then another app would say, "Hey, hang on a minute, I'll pay you to download my app." Yeah. <laughs> do you know, that the conversation suddenly changes. Yeah. Like, I'll give you money to download my I'll give you $50,000 a year. So then the consumer becomes empowered. The consumer, yeah. do you know, like well, I wonder why that hasn't happened.
1: If you have become the product, then you should get something back for it, right? Like, if yeah. you are the product. That's what they keep saying. If, if you're not, if it doesn't cost you anything, you're the product. But like, if you're the product, you should some sort of return for that. It's a no-brainer to me. I think what, where it comes tricky is that your single data alone is not worth anything. It's only when you're collectively with a certain amount of people you know, mm. the data, the, that the data can surface any kind of insight. So, yeah. you know, you clicking on one button could be like 0.00000003. <laughs> so um, it's it's probably is hard to specify, hey, this is how much your data is specifically worth. But you could, of course, you could um, estimate it. You could definitely estimate it and give transparency, but companies aren't really into transparency.
0: Yeah, over <laughs> a lifetime. I mean, it wouldn't be, you know, we're not talking – Weeks, yeah. you know, I mean, over a lifetime, yeah,
1: yeah. how some. how much is yeah, yeah. like even
0: one individual? How much is our data yeah. worth to Google over a lifetime of yeah. use? You know, and you think I have to guess? It's like at least fifty thousand dollars, at least.
1: And like, I mean, every time that you place the Facebook ad and say I want it in this demographic, that's collectively us all inputting to yes, that's the right fit. You know, mm. so if yeah. they're making here like billions of dollars off that, then of course you know mm. over, over a lifetime yeah
0: yeah yeah you've got a few things on the boil how do you come up with ideas like what's your process it's fluidity you know your creativity seems quite effortless i've
1: been reading about flow states a lot lately and i've always loved the thought of incubation of thoughts so you know like quite often creatives get called procrastinators but really your procrastination is your incubate your thoughts are incubating and that's actually really important in the in the creative process that's why there's lots of theories about I oh, should go for a walk if you if you don't come up with an idea or will do that um so for me I think trying to get into that flow state at first it's much easier for me for music than anything else um I occasionally get it when I'm trying to write my script but not very often with the script I actually have to have a lot of um the scenes plotted out first and then if I've got that right mix and if I've had the incubation and I've thought about the characters about that scene, then I can get into a flow state and then it just comes flowing out of me and it's very easy. So for people who don't know, flow states are a likened to how um, a rapper's um, brain works when they're doing freestyle raps. So freestyle raps, yeah. Yeah, basically they've yeah. discovered that when, in brain scans, like hardly any of the language part of their brain actually lights up and, and it definitely the language does not. Cross the conscious part of thought, so they don't actually they don't actually consciously think about what they're going to say. The language um, just comes flowing out of them. So they get in this state where they're not actually even conscious about what they're saying.
0: It's kind of like remote viewing, isn't it? It's just like you know, I'm just writing something down. What I'm, whatever I'm feeling.
1: Yeah, and like I mean, that's exactly what happens when people are um, playing musical instruments, and they can do like in a jazz where they just uh, just making up as they go. So,
0: Is that the same as when writers say, just start writing? What have you yeah, do? Just start yeah, writing. Yeah. So that's a flow yeah. state.
1: Let it flow out of you. And so, and it's and, it, and it's good because it c- kills all that inhibition of, you know, of crit- criticizing yourself because you're not actually consciously thinking about it. You can have a comp- like a critical view of that afterwards, but at the time it's about trying to get into this state. So I, I definitely haven't perfected it. I'm not, I couldn't just go to, I'm going to go and get in the flu state. Definitely mm. depends on my mood and how much I've pre-thought I've kind of had to time to think about things. I guess I'm one of those people, I think, again, because I was homeschooled, who will just be happy to spit out stuff and get shot down if I'm in the group or, you know, or I mean, I've made some videos of myself doing stuff and I look back on it and it's so cringe worthy. <laughs> the time it seemed like a good idea kind of thing so i think i'm quite good at just not worrying about the rejection or just understanding that more ideas can be better than the best idea you know
0: yeah what is your best idea if you were to say or some of your best work the work that you're most proud of what what are some examples there
1: uh, one of the things we worked on together was quite good do you remember the um the midnight spooning
0: Oh yeah, for Kellogg's yeah.
1: I that. that was such a good idea. And that was good for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it how, we get, how can we get people eating breakfast, Sarah, outside
0: breakfast outside of breakfast occasion hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And
1: and it was I love that because it was a it was Kellogg and they had all these different agencies and they said best agency wins.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we
1: all went in and pitched and we won. And yeah, it was that was it was fantastic. So we got this brand who had always like very like very, very toe-the-line, don't do anything too outrageous, yeah. to actually be building a website that looked like a porn site.
0: Porn
1: site, yeah. a bunch of boxes that were doing relude random things.
0: Yeah, we even uh, set up a help a sex with sex where line. Where you could
1: up <laughs> and you, you, could, you could have a bigger path of what the yeah. lady was yeah. And, like, some of those calls were brilliant. I was like, yeah. oh, what do you want? It was just a brilliant. And then we had the little chatbot as well on an open-source chatbot. I, keep, Alex I forgot about that. But that's
0: such a, it, was such a good, it was such a good campaign. That was so fun. <laughs> I remember we all brainstormed it and we we all collectively came up with this idea, and even though Jacko tried to claim it. He I, know,
1: I was going to say that I was going to say, you, you didn't get the credit from it, but it was totally your idea. The <laughs> you called it Midnight Spooning. Yeah, I called it Midnight
0: Spooning. I can claim that, that's for sure. Jacko, <laughs> he was an arsehole, man, that guy. <laughs> he, but, he, no, he's a lovely he, guy, but he was, surreal,
1: he was an alpha.
0: <laughs> He was an alpha dude, wasn't he? Was he? Such an alpha <laughs> but yeah, dude.
1: Yeah. I mean that was it was such a great campaign. It was <laughs> it was just like and just to get it past the line. I, I couldn't
0: believe they, they bought it.
1: So much copywriting in that right Oh man. Yeah. People working for weeks. And the way that I really like getting across the line was by pushing it to the absolute limit. Like
0: the, the campaigns like that, that you look back on and you, <laughs> I was a little bit embarrassed by it initially. Cause uh-huh. uh, you know, I try, I think I took myself way too seriously. Uh, and- <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, <wasn't> my-
0: <laughs> yeah, it was is weird. It was just off brand for James Barrow. Like fucking get a grip yeah. dude. But i look back on that and go, yeah, that was really cool. It was really good because you know, it was fun. It was fun. It didn't take but itself it's too seriously.
1: And, um, it wasn't a huge budget. We managed to get so much done for the budget that we had. All Every other agency.
0: <laughs> you make creativity look easy. <laughs> what advice would you give to people starting out in the industry who may not have come from such supportive, nurturing, creative environments? What advice would you give to people?
1: I think the handiest thing that I've ever you know, fostered in my life, I got again given it to me from my family, but is to not care what other people think like we get so held down about and we stew over and we get anxious about what other people are going to think, but really you know, those people are probably so caught up in thinking about themselves and perhaps what other people think of them that it's, it's just such a waste emotion. It's such wasted emotion, such wasted anxiety, such wasted thought processes because it's all speculation. You really have to just not give a shit. You're never, gonna, you're never going to do anything outside of the box or anything truly different.
0: If you were to distill that into a bite of wisdom, <laughs> what, would, what, <laughs> what would that be?
1: I guess it's being creative with your creative process, you know? Like if you can be creative with your creative process,
0: you're probably going to do much better than trying to be rigid and find out what works, you know? That really works. I was talking to Tyson um, in in a few episodes ago, and he was saying we've got to embrace the diverse opinions of people, and he was even talking about, yeah, listen to the flat earthers.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, listen to the right-wing extremists. They have an opinion, and, you know, you've got to – Go for Like, if you really want to be creative, you've got to go to those depths of, of opinions yeah. and perspectives, yeah. and the right answers will emerge. The right, but if you're not willing to go to those depths and those lengths and embrace all opinions, yeah. then you haven't explored far exactly.
1: enough. You're you know? putting your own rigidity into your thought process that you did not have anywhere. Yeah. To yeah. Anyway, you know? um, it, I, it's really interesting to say that because I do have a friend who. Ernest believes the earth was flat. And I, I 100% listen to what he has to say. I don't agree with him, but no yeah. harm in understanding how, what kind of hole he fell yeah. in, you know? That yeah. alone is creative in its own way, you know, like how they can listen to this and why this is they want to put it over this logical kind of thing.
0: You know, like but the act of listening to them and hearing their rationale for their flat earth theory can spark some really non-related but equally interesting thoughts and ideas. Oh, and
1: some of the really, like I said, the, the, the documentary, the curve, like if that guy never, if he just dispelled, the documentary makers, if they just dispelled, oh, no, that stuff's rubbish, they would never have made this amazing documentary.
0: Amazing documentary, uh, yeah, exactly. To yeah, really totally. have
1: a look into it, and there are so many really pointed yeah. parts of that documentary that make it a really good documentary. Yeah,
0: yeah, Well, Crystal, it's always a pleasure chatting to you. I find your energy mm-hmm. and just um, just effortless creativity is so inspiring. I've really, really enjoyed the chat, and thank you so much for coming on the B side. <laughs> it was awesome. It
1: was so hard not to just get lost
0: in it. I reckon we could just keep chatting about. <laughs> I
1: think
0: they're awesome. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Crystal. Thank you. See ya. Bye. Hey. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, if you'd like to find out more about me or the B Side podcast, please visit JamesBside.com. That's one word, JamesBside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B Side If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at JamesBside.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. The B Side with James Barrow is produced by me and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers.